Welcome to a special edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. It's no secret that the Audiophile team loves author Philip Pullman and the worlds he built in his trilogy, His Dark Materials. Those books center around a bold and brave girl named Lyra, whom we first met in The Golden Compass. Well, last year we were lucky enough to speak with the creative team behind the full cast production of The Golden Compass, which is my favorite audiobook ever. Well, this fall, The Secret Commonwealth, the second book in Pullman's new Book of Dust trilogy, was published. And on top of that, HBO debuted its new series based on his dark materials. So we thought it was the perfect time to revisit Pullman's worlds and our interview and share it with Behind the Mic listeners. Enjoy. Three miles up the River Thames from the center of Oxford, some distance from where the great colleges of Jordan, Gabriel, Balliol, and two dozen others contended for mastery in the boat races, out where the city was only a collection of towers and spires in the distance over the misty levels of Port Meadow, there stood the Priory of Godstow, where the gentle nuns went about their holy business. And on the opposite bank from the Priory, there was an inn called the Trout. You just heard Michael Sheen narrating La Belle Sauvage, the first volume of Philip Pullman's new trilogy, The Book of Dust. For fans of Pullman and his first trilogy, His Dark Materials, this return to the world of demons and Lyra and dust is pure magic. In La Belle Sauvage, we're introduced to 11-year-old Malcolm, an innkeeper's son who becomes the protector of an infant Lyra, already a special child who's wanted by malevolent forces. It's a wonderful beginning to the new trilogy, which also got us thinking about the audio production of the first, The Golden Compass, The Subtle Knife, and The Amber Spyglass. The unabridged full-cast recordings were a momentous undertaking and an extraordinary success. So we brought the leaders of the original creative team together to talk about his dark materials, the Book of Dust, and the magic of Philip Pullman. Our guests are Orly Moskowitz. She's a senior executive producer at Penguin Random House Audio Listening Library and was executive producer of both the first trilogy and the Book of Dust. Garrick Hagen directed the first trilogy. And he's an actor who played Lee Scoresby. Garrick's also valiant, since he didn't let laryngitis keep him away. And finally, Tim Ditlow. Tim, now the vice president of content at Epic, a children's ebook library. But at the time, Tim was the publisher of The Listening Library, who made the unusual decision to produce a multicast, unabridged recording of his dark materials. Tim Ditlow. I had my own company that my parents had started back in the 50s, which was an unabridged recording company. And prior to reading The Golden Compass, I had an imprint with a very well-known children's author named Bruce Coville, specifically aimed at reluctant readers. And the idea was that we would go to some of Bruce's author friends and people that we both admired and start an imprint of audio that would be unabridged full cast, which had not been done before. So we were looking at books to be able to eliminate the he said, she said, and then bring in a cast of, of actors to interpret the book. And we cut our teeth um, on about 30 recordings prior to The Golden Compass. 
you know, a lot of really, truly incredible middle-grade uh, novels that worked as full-cast recordings, so that by the time The Golden Compass came out and crossed our desks, Bruce and I looked at each other and said, this is the Holy Grail. Let's write to Philip. And Bruce wrote him a, an amazing letter that actually he sent me. He kept a copy in which he made the case to Philip that all there, there had been an abridged version done by Random House it just didn't do justice to his work, and that really a full cast interpretation would be the way to go, and, and Philip signed on. Orly, you were going to jump in. I was just going to ask how he decided to use Philip, which was such a beautiful decision. He has such a rich, buttery voice. That strikes me as such a roll of the dice, because it turns out that he was a fabulous narrator. But suppose he hadn't been. That was a risk. It was a big risk because I had learned from my father, uh, he had a difficult experience with Isaac Asimov reading the Foundation Trilogy, that he advised me when I started working for him that the policy to put in place was that all authors were welcome to read only if they would be willing to audition. And so I have had the misfortune of telling many well-known authors, no, you can't read your own book. But we felt that the only way in to Philip was to say yes. And we had heard, though, through the grapevine that he was a former teacher and a great storyteller. So it was sort of a risk, but not risky. So That's wonderful. the voice I hear when I read the books, and I've read the books to my oldest son, and I hear Philip's voice. Lyra and her demon moved through the darkening hall, taking care to keep to one side, out of sight of the kitchen. The three great tables that ran the length of the hall were laid already, the silver and the glass catching what little light there was, and the long benches were pulled out ready for the guests. Portraits of former masters hung high up in the gloom along the walls. Lyra reached the dais and looked back at the open kitchen door and, seeing no one, stepped up beside the high table. The places here were laid with gold, not silver, and the fourteen seats were not oak benches but mahogany chairs with velvet cushions. Lyra stopped beside the master's chair and flicked the biggest glass gently with a fingernail. The sound rang clearly through the hall. You're not taking this seriously, whispered her demon. Behave yourself. Her demon's name was Pantalaimon, and he was currently in the form of a moth, a dark brown one so as not to show up in the darkness of the hall. They're making too much noise to hear from the kitchen, Lyra whispered back. And the steward doesn't come in till the first bell. Stop fussing. But she put her palm over the ringing crystal anyway. Garrick Hagen. Philip felt very, I think, nervous about the, the operation, and um, we worked a lot on technique or talked about it and talked about breathing, talked about a lot of things. But at the end, he was absolutely bang on all the way through, incredibly fluent. But he did need a massage after the end. He was very, very stiff. But the thing, the great thing about having Philip as narrator was having him in the studio with the actors and giving him them the kind of inspiration and occasional pointers, and dramatic pointers. So it gave a kind of unity to the production because we were actually recording out of sequence throughout the uh, three recordings we were recording according to the availability of the actors. It was like a film. The, the actors would come in having read the scene but not having read perhaps the whole book. And Philip was often there to guide and to give us encouragement. I want to talk about how you actually recorded the books. You had actors who were in a scene together in the studio together, which actually is not the way full cast recordings always work. Orly Moskowitz. 
when recording a full cast recording, you really do approach it as you would a film, the most efficient groupings of actors. So if actors are in a scene together, it makes sense to have them come into the studio together, but you also have to consider their availability and the efficiency of the recording process. Actually, the best person to talk about it is Garrick because mm. it's an art form. Organizing the actors and their schedules and getting them into the studio in the most efficient way and the most efficient groupings is an art form. And that was you, Garrick. My wife, too, Liza um, Ross, actually was a great programmer and it worked out to the minute practically to the minute, because you have to judge how long you think the scene's going to be, and then you're going to call the actors uh, when they should be there. And in every single case, I think over the three productions, except the second one, The Subtle Knife, and when we had a terrible train crash, not us personally, but it happened just before Philip's train. But every other occasion, the actors were on time and finished their scenes on time. It was an incredible effort on, on everybody's part. And did Garrick do the casting? We all did the cast. Well, I mean, I cast a lot of friends who, and, and Orly and Tim approved them. We have a lot to draw on. We had a lot of radio actors who were incredibly experienced, not only at on stage acting, but uh, voice acting in all its forms. And I think uh, Philip approved all the actors when he heard them working. Orly and Tim approved them in advance. And so it was a group in which we were very proud. And at the end, I remember, I know Philip gave us all the great compliment of saying that I think it was better than the film. <laughs> I hate to say it, but he... Oh, yeah, absolutely. The casting of Lyra and Will, I thought, was genius, because if those two voices were wrong, it would have fallen apart. But Joanna Wyatt as Lyra was perfect, just the way yes, she, she got that ferocious nature. And Peter England as Will was also perfect with a gentle philosophical voice. She heard a sound behind her, and there was Will, heavy-eyed with sleep. I can make omelette. I'll make you some if you like. He looked at her plate and said, No, I'll have some cereal. There's still some milk in the fridge that's all right. They can't have been gone very long, the people who lived here. She watched him shake cornflakes into a bowl and pour milk on them, something else she'd never seen before. He carried the bowl outside and said, If you don't come from this world, where's your world? How did you get here? Over a bridge. My father made this bridge and I followed him across. But he's gone somewhere else, I don't know where. I don't care. But while I was walking across, there was so much fog and I got lost, I think. I walked around in the fog for days, just eating berries and stuff I found. Then one day the fog cleared and we was up on that cliff back there. She gestured behind her. Will looked along the shore past the lighthouse and saw the coast rising in a great series of cliffs that disappeared into the haze of the distance. And we saw the town here and came down, but there was no one here. At least there were things to eat and beds to sleep in. We didn't know what to do next. You sure this isn't another part of your world? Of course. This ain't my world. I know that for certain. Talk about bringing those two in. Garrick Hagen. Well, because Joanna was... I'd worked with her for many years, and she did Alice in Wonderland for me, and, and she was just a wonderful young actress. Peter worked with me on... Or I worked with him, indeed, on The Archers, the radio show, the very popular uh, serial here. So... 
I knew them both, and I knew they were both very talented. Some of the other children around Lyra and Will were very inexperienced. In fact, they had none, no, no professional experience at all. And some of them were from our church. Some of them were from uh, theater schools. I was so pleased. Their spirit and, and what they came up with was terrific. That was one of the great joys. And I think Philip enjoyed them, too. He was very good with the kids. So we were very lucky. I mean, the, the, when I think of the wonderful people like Sean Barrett playing Lord Azrael and Alison Dowling playing Mrs. Coulter, we couldn't have had better. Just not forget better. Lee Scoresby. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which was you. Which was me, but I had a voice. Yeah. I'm Josephine Reed, and this is the download from Audiophile Magazine. My guests are director Garrick Hagen executive producer Orly Moskowitz, and publisher Tim Ditlow. We're talking about Philip Holman and his trilogies, his Dark Materials and the Book of Dust. Orly, you were executive producer, and most of us have no idea what that means. Can you explain? <laughs> executive producer means I am a project manager of a creative process and creative product. So I oversee casting. I decide who is going to direct an audiobook recording. I decide where we're going to record, what recording studio, all the logistics that happen in between scheduling, um, making sure that everything is delivering on schedule, post-production, quality control. I oversee all aspects of the project. And Tim, as publisher of Listening Library, who's, you know, you spearheaded this project, how do, how do you work with Orly? Well, that's a good question, because actually the whole timing was that, so that fall of 1998 is when Bruce and I acquired the rights, but then in January of 1999, I came on full-time at Random House Audio, so I was very fortunate when I was introduced immediately to Orly. And there really seemed to have an affinity for the uh, younger material. At the time, Random House Audio was doing children's as well. They had done a number of remarkably um, you know, Newbery Award-winning recordings. So Orly already had that experience. And I think, you know, Orly, you'll talk to this, but of all the executive producers, it seemed that there was more of a, a kinship, if you were, to the children's material. Orly, you were the executive producer of the wonderful Harry Potter books narrated by Jim Dale. I did. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that was a very special experience. I just want to say how much Orly taught me and my uh, engineer, Wolfgang, about the precision needed in editing. I mean, obviously, we had a rough idea, but what Orly is is meticulous. And what we learn from her is something we treasure to this day. We still call it an Orly. Do it the way Orly wanted so, well, thank um, you, Garrett. <laughs> well, I have described myself as a professional stickler. Oh. It's, it's my job. I try to be kind. I try to be understanding. I think I'm a pretty nice person, but it's my job to be a stickler and make sure that ultimately the product sounds as beautiful as it can for our consumers. The decision to go full cast, that is a big expenditure and tons of, of balls to juggle in the air. And especially after coming off of the Harry Potter, which was narrated by Jim Dale, a single voice and was so incredibly successful. Tell me some of the thoughts on your end as the executive producer that went into okaying a full cast. When deciding the format that we're going to approach it for the recording, 
it's very rarely will we consider a full cast production. The text and the format of the text really needs to call for it. And I think really Tim can speak to this a l better because he was really involved more in the process of deciding how what format we would record this. But ultimately we think of it as an investment because the expense in terms of time, um, it's a big endeavor. Casting all of those individual actors, scheduling all of those actors, recording them, all of that studio time. And then the post-production, the edit, is much more intricate than a single voice recording. You have to piece it together so that it sounds like everyone was in the studio together and it's a totally smooth recording. And that takes a lot of time and a lot of expense. But we consider it an investment, but very rarely does text call for that approach. But I think Tim can yeah, talk about Tim, what, what the decision process was. I'd say that when I was running Listening Library, my bookkeeper, Michael, was convinced I was going to bankrupt the company with the Golden Compass. So actually, I was very happy to be at Random House at the time the expenses came in uh, because they were able to help fund this uh, because it was a commitment to a trilogy. We have to remember the other That's two books exactly, had not, exactly. not been written. Uh, as time went on, we worked on The Subtle Knife. But when the Amber Spyglass came in, the manuscript for that was, was long, and Orly and I sat down with the manuscript and looked at it and said, this is going to be a massive undertaking, and the budget was beyond anything we'd seen before for children's audiobooks. Now, at that point, you know, there was a procedure in place at Random House where I, as a publisher, had sign-off up to a certain dollar level. So most children's audiobooks fell in under that dollar level, and I was, had a lot of freedom to acquire and produce the titles that I loved you know, and read and fell in love with. But when it came to the Amber Spyglass, there was that sort of moment where we all sort of gulped and said, this is beyond the normal budget. And so, thankfully, I was able to go visit the publisher of Random House Children's Books at the time. A good friend was uh, Craig Verdon. He's no longer uh, with us, but he poured a glass of wine. He said, let me look at this budget. And he looked at it and he said, you know what? Philip is so important to the house and the work that you guys are doing over there in the audio division with his work on the previous two titles is so powerful. Let me help out. And he just sat at his desk and sort of wrote an intercompany check, if you will, to our division. And at that point, we were able to show that we could make it work. So a real tribute to a legendary publisher who helped us out. Wow, that's a great story. I, I just want to add a personal yes. note. By the time we came to Amber Spyglass and Tim's right, it was huge. I also remember Philip saying, I will not produce this audio or work with you on the audio until I am absolutely happy with every single bit of it. This is going to be my perfect fling. And um, indeed, he did finish it the way he wanted to. And another thing about Tim's business, uh, talk about the attributives. Philip gave me, uh, throughout, the uh, liberty of cutting all the attributives and adverbs that I felt described the action rather than allowing the actors to present it themselves through their talent. And Philip was very, very lenient with that and, and allowed us to, to bring in our production without all the unnecessary adverbs, the, the adverbs we could do without. Uh, he was, generally, we worked very well together. Oh, that's so interesting. So the adverbs, a lot of adverbs went. Yes, it would have Just, been redundant of once course. you've heard the delivery. And aside from that, adverbs 
when I began doing doing radio, the first thing I did when I was listening to myself was, oh, you have got to get rid of adverbs. There are things <laughs> they stand out when you're speaking, even though they work so well in text. And this is why it was so important to have the buy-in from the authors on this in print in particular, because we were you know, slightly editing. It actually turns out when you do remove them, it's less than 1% of the text. Yeah. Oh, very wise. Tim and Orley, I believe you traveled to England for at least some of the recording sessions? That's right. It's really magical. Orley, Orley and I were in London, and you know, uh, and to watch what unfolded in the studio, between the two of us, we probably have over 1,000 children's audiobooks under our belt. That's really my rough estimate. And I'd say that I've seen, prior to the, the Golden Compass, over 30 full-cast productions from Syracuse to Liverpool, right? And... When I walked in the studio with Orly to watch the magic happen, Philip was baffled off to one side. But the chemistry, there was a certain ingredient that I think we've all witnessed firsthand when we've seen a Broadway show where the magic happens there. These actors that Garrick assembled all knew one another so well, had previously worked in radio for years together. There was not a lot of need to even talk. They would just even use hand gestures and immediately moved into each other's role seamlessly. And that's rare to witness. It was really special. It was an incredible trip. And being part of the process, we work on many audiobook recordings, but getting to the studio is always fantastic. But for a full cast production and watching these actors and this this intricate dance of moving actors in and out of the studio and the way these actors interacted with each other, it really was phenomenal. And, and these recordings happened a long time ago. Wow. And I still remember Garrick felt very strongly that there, there must be snacks. There must be good oh. snacks for these actors <laughs> because they were all coming in for usually for, for short periods between mm. other work. And in the middle of their day and coming in and out, and there needed to be delicious snacks. <laughs> yeah. Garrick, Garrick is an actor's director. He is an actor himself, and he, he knows intimately what is going to make it work for an actor and how to direct them and how to explain. He has the vocabulary to really work with actors and explain to them how to get that finished product. They really adopted Philip as one of their own. It was really great to see how they, you know, Philip had, as we said earlier, had uh, some concerns about going in and making this kind of time commitment. He's pretty busy, has his uh, full-time writing career. So to travel from Oxford down to London and come into the studio on a daily basis for that period of time, when he first came in and we we saw that uh, chemistry between him and the actors, they really adopted him as one of their own. He was another (laughs) actor. He was not an author. He was one of them. Yeah, no, yeah. He certainly read it as though he was. Can we, can we just talk a little bit about the music? That's just what I was going to ask, so please talk <laughs> about the music. Peter Ponson was a friend of Philip's and, and went through a, a variety of themes that he could use or that he would develop. But what he ended up with was, to me, magic and means a lot to me to turn on the very first record and hear his music underneath the, the poems and, and in bringing into the production. I think it just sets the tone beautifully. I did suggest one thing that I remember picking up for the Amber Spyglass. Somebody told me about glass harmonicas that Mozart composed, and I asked Peter to use glass harmonicas as the only suggestion I made to Peter, but it came off very well for the journey into the underworld. Well, frankly, I just love the work that Peter Ponson did. 
you know, also with the music, Orly and I, you know, we shared a lot of the same aesthetics. You know, there's a lot of little nuances that go into an audiobook production that maybe people not in the trade. And actually, it's good that it's seamless and invisible. But Orly and I have this thing about what we would call the Pinterest pause at an end of a production where a lot of audiobook producers jam the credits and the music so hard on the last word. There's not that moment where when you finish a book, your eye rests on the page and you have a moment just to absorb the powerful ending of, of a novel that you've been transported to for in your mind's eye for hours. And so when we have the first book end with Lyra walking off into the sky, there's just a second where still to this day I get, I get goosebumps because that music comes in just at the right moment and then you picture her and her demon pan heading off into the sky. It's wonderful. And you did that, though, also at the end of each chapter, which I appreciated. Mm. There was just a moment, and then the music would come up, and we'd be off into the next chapter. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of music and children's audiobooks as a whole. I think you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. You know, it's a very slippery slope because many people overdo it. In this case, uh, as uh, Garrick was saying, again, was one of those moments where we had the right musician at the right time. I've become even more of a purist these days that people, for the most part, are there to listen to a book experience. They're not there to listen to music. And I, I'm always very wary about including music and possibly offending someone's, possibly negatively impacting somebody's listening experience because music that I think is perfect might not sound perfect to somebody else. And yes. that yeah. might take away from the listening experience when really they want to experience the book. So we have to be very careful when we do include music that's as on the Golden Compass and the Subtle Knife and the Amber Spyglass. Sometimes it can work perfectly. Yeah. yeah. Let's just take one book, take the Amber Spyglass, since it's the oh. last one. How much studio time did that take, Eric? Uh, 12 days in the studio. What I about post production? Oh, post-production, I, I have no idea. It went on for hours and days and days. days. It would have been, yeah, it would have been, it would have been weeks. Yeah, I think a month altogether, I think, at least. Yeah, because, of course, it, out, it went back to America, to Dwarley and Tim, and then back to us, and so we were constantly in touch with each other. And that whole process must have taken weeks. I can't remember how many. And we, in the days before Dropbox, and you send it. Yeah, exactly. Thank God it exactly. wasn't razor blade editing. <laughs> <laughs> 16 years has gone by, or 17, I, I can't remember, since the Amber Spyglass, and suddenly we're back to Lyra's world with the Book of Dust. And this time, Orly, you took a different approach with this book. Tell us what went into that. When we became aware of the publication schedule, Philip finished writing the book, excitement was overflowing, and we were thinking about how we would approach this recording. Should it be a full cast recording? Should it not be a full cast recording? What ultimately made the decision was Michael Sheen, who is a tremendous Philip Pullman file um, and is his Dark Materials lover, approached Philip Pullman and said that he would be interested in reading. And when Michael Sheen approaches you and expresses interest in recording an audiobook for you, it's a good idea to say, why, that's a fantastic idea. Let's do that together. And he did such a beautiful job. When I found out that it wasn't a full cast recording, you know, I removed the knife from my heart and I started listening and it was amazing. It really is amazing. I would forget it's one actor. When Malcolm came back with their drinks, they asked if they could get a dinner here. And if so, what the place had to offer. 
Roast beef, sir, and it's very good. I know, because I just had some. Oh, le patron manger ici, eh? said the oldest of the gentlemen, as they drew up their chairs to the little table. His demon, a handsome black-and-white lemur, sat calmly on his shoulder. I live here, sir. The landlord's my father, said Malcolm, and my mother's the cook. What's your name? said the tallest and thinnest of the visitors, a scholarly-looking man with thick grey hair whose demon was a greenfinch. Malcolm Polstead, sir. What's that place over the river, Malcolm? said the third, a man with large, dark eyes and a black moustache. His demon, whatever she was, lay curled up on the floor at his feet. It was dark by then, of course, and all they could see on the other side of the river was the dimly lit stained-glass windows of the oratory and the light that always shone over the gatehouse. That's the priory, sir, the sisters of the Order of St. Rosamond. And who was St. Rosamond? I never asked them about St. Rosamond. There's a picture of her in the stained glass, though, sort of standing in a great big rose. Expect she's named after that. I'll have to ask Sister Benedicta. Oh, you know them well, then. Talk to them every day, sir, more or less. I do odd jobs around the priory, run errands, that sort of thing. And do these nuns ever have visitors? said the oldest man. Yes, sir, quite often. All sorts of people. There are people who can create these worlds for you and you forget. Michael Sheen is one of those. Yeah. Jim Dale, Alan Corduner. I think, I think a lot of people were anticipating being disappointed because it was not going to be recorded in the same format, in the same full cast format. And they thought it would be disappointing. And it really, it isn't because you do forget. You forget that it's a single person creating all of these really richly varied characters. Absolutely. He is brilliant. I loved it. So when do you get the manuscript, early for something like the Book of Dust? And do you try to publish the audiobook simultaneously? How does that work so that the timing makes sense? We do publish simultaneously. That's crucial. We worked very closely with Penguin Random House UK on this recording, and we received the text early in the process. Um, it was the copyedited manuscript, I think, and we started reading and thinking about casting. Mm -hmm. And then... Michael Sheen came into our lives. What memories do you have about creating those incredible books? I'm going to start with you, Garrick. It all it revolves around the, the community that we had together to do it. And all of us would think of it fondly. You know, you'd very rarely do a production in which, if it's mentioned um, amongst yourselves, you all have a warm glow. Because we were working, let's face it, with a marvelous and very intricate text, and it's so rare for us all to get a text like that to deal with. I just—I mean, the, the words were an education in many cases. The fantasy level was kind of touchable and tangible. You could actually envisage it. Often I find in fantasy it goes so far out, out into outer space that you... You've lost contact with any kind of reality, but there was so much reality there. You know, there's a lot of drama in a drama studio, and not just in front of the mics. It's, it, it's all around you. Everybody brought their own sense of reality to it, and I, I appreciate it so much. I also enjoyed the times which I had with Philip himself. They were kind of special, just getting to know him a little bit and feel that uh, you were in the presence of a, a great author. 
It's very rare you get that personal contact. Orly. I spoke earlier about feeling a responsibility to listeners to create really beautiful recordings. And it's also true of the responsibility I feel toward the author of doing justice to their work. And I really, I feel passionately about Philip Pullman and his work. And they're, they're truly brilliant works of literature, and we had to do them justice. Just I feel fiercely protective of the material, and I'm so pleased with how they all turned out. And I was a little nervous before I read La Belle Sauvage. I was a little nervous. Could it be as good as the original trilogy? How, how would it measure up? And there was no disappointment. Philip brings us right back into this world. And it, it was it was gorgeous. And it has the same level of of beauty. And depth. So and depth. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's why that's why I like his term. He calls it an equal. It's not a prequel. It's not a sequel. It is truly an equal, the new novel. And um like Orly and Garrick said it for me in November nineteen ninety eight I went over to see Philip to help close the deal. I felt it was important to fly over uh, and see him in person to convince him that his baby was going to be in good hands. There was a lot of unknowns. I was going into a new career at Random House, working with a whole new team, and I felt that a lot was riding on this because after 30 other full cast productions, this was the one book, I have to say, and you're not supposed to have favorite children, but I felt that there, this one was the one, the pinnacle, and we had to do it right. And once we got going... I was able to take a big, deep sigh because I knew Garrick. I trusted him. I trusted Orly. And the minute Philip got behind the mic and I saw how the actors embraced him, that ingredients X kicked in. The chemistry started and the mic rolled. And to this day, it remains one of the recordings I'm most proud of. Thank you, everybody. Thank Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Orly Moskowitz a senior executive producer at Penguin Random House Audio Listening Library, Garrick Hagen, actor and director, and Tim Ditlow, the vice president of content at Epic, a children's ebook library. They were the creative team behind Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. And Orly is the executive producer of his new trilogy, The Book of Dust. Check out our reviews of these books and other Philip Pullman titles as well as hundreds of others at audiophilemagazine.com. I'm Joe Reed. It's been a special edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. Good listening.